Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing, and perhaps it is a good afternoon for at least some of those who are picking up their results today, because it's A-level day, of course, in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Some 250,000 students are getting their computer-regulated grades. Of course, the exams were cancelled by the pandemic. In England, 36% of entries had a lower grade than teachers predicted, and 3% were down two grades, but under the so-called triple lock, pupils will be able to appeal the result or sit the exams in the autumn. Uh, Education Secretary Gavin Williamson insisted the plan in England is fair. These actions are all focused about making sure that young people are able to succeed, and I won't apologise from the fact that we want to make these changes because we do believe they'll benefit young people. That was the Education Secretary Gavin Williamson there. Well, joining us now to discuss all of this is Henry Smith. He's a Conservative MP for Crawley and a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee as well. Henry, good to have you with us. I mean, looking at the papers today, head teachers left, right and centre saying their pupils have been marked down. I mean, this is starting to look quite chaotic, I feel. Well, we've been through some very difficult times, unprecedented circumstances, but the situation is is that uh, students receiving their results this morning and my best wishes and good luck to all of my constituent students receiving results today, uh, they can either accept those or they can appeal to uh, get their mock uh, results uh, taken into account or there's an option uh, later on uh, once the summer holidays are over to take those exams in real time themselves. So there are some options uh, for students who uh, don't feel that they have been fairly graded. But again, you know, these are unprecedented times. And I think well, it's an example of why we do need to get, for the longer term, our young people back to school. Yeah, I mean, I think people would take on board that, obviously, as a, as a, as a, as a thing to be aimed for. But going back to the exams themselves and the lack of them and how the government dealt with it, I mean, your co- colleague Robert Halfen has been talking about how the whole system, in a way, almost inevitably favours better-off families, favours the already privileged. They are the ones who probably will push to the appeals process, will find it easy to get around the appeals process. So it's going to be socially regressive, isn't it? Well, I think the appeals process uh, every year has become easier and easier. And, of course, the, the, the more that it is online and uh, web-based, then the easier that becomes for people, uh, regardless uh, of uh, their background. That has always been a challenge in education, uh, ever since uh, schooling started, uh, to make sure that those who 
come from uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds have the same opportunity as those uh, from more well-off families. So that is always a challenge that I think we need to be uh, seeking to address, um, whether, whether you're the Education Secretary or all of us in, in, who, uh, who are elected representatives. Mm, yeah, I want to put something to you that we heard yesterday. We spoke to Christine Jardine, the uh, Liberal Democrat MP, who said that given everything that students have been through in the crisis, some of them may have have lost loved ones even, uh, why not take every opportunity to ensure that their grades aren't marked down? Indeed, if you look through the papers, even papers that are typically conservative sympathisers, the Telegraph saying scrap the computer model, the mail, calling this an entirely foreseeable calamity, they seem to be in line with this way of thinking. Well, we did, of course, see uh, last week uh, this situation in Scotland, which I think was uh, far worse uh, than uh, the experience uh, today in England, Wales and uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, And certainly I think that uh, there will need to be lessons learned uh, from how this issue has been handled uh, in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, along with so many others uh, as well. Uh, And that's why I very much support uh, a public inquiry so that... uh, what was what was done right, what was done wrong, and what lessons can be learned uh, takes place. Um, but I do overall think that the option to accept these results, accept mock results, or uh, to uh, exercise the option to actually sit an exam in person, I do think that is uh, that that is about the most generous offer that can be made, given, as I say, the unprecedented circumstances and challenges that education has been in, not just in this country but around the world. Let's move on, if we may, Henry, to uh, what's going on today, which is Boris Johnson, of course, in Northern Ireland. He's also going to meet Michael Martin, uh, the new Irish Taoiseach. Um, I mean, uh, uh, with the look of what's going to happen in terms of Brexit, the potential double border that Northern Ireland is going to be dealing with, um, there are really no new ideas out there, it seems, about how this is all going to work. What Michael Goh has been talking about almost seems to acknowledge that this is going to be a very complicated situation for Northern Ireland if the no deal goes through, or even if it doesn't. Uh, This is not a good time for Northern Ireland, really, under this Conservative government. Well, I would disagree with that. I think there are huge opportunities for Northern Ireland, as there are for the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, with leaving the European Union. Um, the trade deals that are currently being negotiated with countries like Japan, uh, making good progress, uh, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well, all of these uh, mean that uh, Northern Ireland uh, will have access to far more global free trade than was possible um, under the European Union. So I think uh, in the medium to long term, uh, there's a very bright future for the for the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland as part of that, um, as part of uh, global uh, Britain. Uh, there are certainly some immediate challenges and there are ongoing negotiations, as you well know, with the uh, European Union uh, to get that trade deal. I've never known an EU negotiation that hasn't gone down to the wire. But at least from the British side of that negotiation, we now have uh, a very robust being taken and I you know I'm confident that Northern Ireland will benefit uh, from our future relationship just as England Scotland Wales uh, will as well but but Henry I mean you talk about all these foreign trade deals but looking at the stats overwhelmingly the majority of trade that the UK does is with the EU and even if you pile the others together it still doesn't compare so that deal really is crucial isn't it 
Well, of course we trade a lot uh, with our European uh, neighbours, uh, and that's why I'm confident that there will be a trade deal. But either way, um, I think uh, that, and, and it's very much in the European Union's interest, um, particularly thrown into uh, stark relief uh, given the economic challenges now placed by COVID-19. I think it's within everyone's uh, interest that that uh, free trading uh, agreement uh, goes ahead. So, I, you know, I, I, I take an optimistic view uh, of the future. Of course, there are uh, challenges, uh, but I think what challenges exist uh, can be met. And I think the opportunity is far greater for Northern Ireland and for the United Kingdom as a whole outside of the Euro European Union. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I, th I think we will see that. So obviously, it's uh, something that we, we will only see uh, in, the, in the coming years, but I'm mm -hmm. confident that, that will be the situation. Well, one thing we may lose as a result of all this, Henry, of course, is our ability to be able to coordinate easily with the French in terms of one of the key issues of the last uh, week or so, which has been about illegal migration. People in small boats coming across the channel, not far across from your constituency, potentially down there. Um, do you, well, you had a meeting with the Home Secretary, I believe, yesterday about these migrant crossings. Uh, did you get any assurances? Well, you say we will lose cooperation with the French. Um, I think uh, to suggest that we're getting cooperation from the French right now um, is uh, stretching, uh, stretching credibility. Um, unfortunately, the French aren't willing to uh, prevent boat, boats uh, leaving uh, their shores. They're not willing to uh, intercept migrants who are uh, attempting to cross the English Channel. In fact, uh, they are escorting them over despite the fact that the UK taxpayer has been helping fund French policing efforts. They haven't been following through on that. And it really uh, says to me that we need, uh, and I was pleased to get assurances from the Home Secretary that this is coming forward, that we need to change the legislative framework that Britain has when it comes to assessing asylum claims. The fact that people can pass through multiple safe countries um, and still uh, claim asylum in the UK is a draw. Um, that being said, the total numbers crossing the channel at the moment are actually less uh, because of the uh, coronavirus restrictions than would normally be the case. Normally, migrants would be trying the routes on the back of lorries uh, through uh, Eurotunnel, um, arriving at airports like Mine Gatwick uh, on flights uh, and so forth. So in terms of total numbers, they're actually slightly less, but of course it's much more visible when dinghies are com coming across the uh, English Channel. It is an un unacceptable situation. It's um, really allowing the people tra traffickers uh, free reign. Um, that's an appalling situation, uh, though many of those who are crossing the Channel are victims um, themselves uh, of the people trafficking uh, gangs. Uh, and it's a situation that uh, no one uh, should, be, should, should find acceptable. So it does need addressing uh, with some more robust action right now, but ultimately it needs to be a change in legislation, which I'm hoping Parliament will be able to start addressing uh, when we're back in full session uh, at the beginning of September. I, I mean, you, you make the point there that these people crossing are themselves the victims. Has the rhetoric around this not gotten out of hand? Boris Johnson saying that this is very bad and stupid and dangerous and criminal. I mean, the only one that I can really pick out there having merit is, is the dangerous aspect. Well, no, I would agree with all of the statement there of the uh, Prime Minister. Um, you know, this isn't fair as well to people who have a legal route uh, to this country. Um, those people who enter this country illegally... Uh, then actually uh, cause people who have legitimate claims to be in this country 
to slip further down uh, the list uh, as the Home Office is dealing with the number of applications. So this is not only... But it's not illegal to cross, it's not illegal to claim asylum. Well, this is why we need change to legislation, because I think most people would think it is ridiculous that somebody could have passed through multiple safe countries uh, where, you know, there isn't war, there isn't conflict, um, and uh, sort of choose um, where where to go, you know. Most most people believe that is um, inherently unfair. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, we start with a new study that gives us an idea potentially of how many people in Britain have had the virus. Yes, I mean, we should add a lot of caveats on it, but it's a major antibody study. It's found around 3.4 million people in England, 6% of the population, have contracted the virus. Infection rates in London are twice the average across the nation. The government says the mass survey of more than 100,000 people is the biggest of its kind in Europe. And that is true. But what happened, these are self-selected people. People uh, who basically were sent kits that they then tested themselves with. I think a lot of people are feeling that the validity of the study may be at least, well, uh, questionable in some areas, although it does produce some evidence. The other issue, of course, is no one's absolutely sure that antibodies actually do anything to prevent people getting another dose of the illness. But it does suggest that the extent of the outbreak varied pretty widely between different areas and different population groups. Yeah, and the the general aim of this really is to tell us how bad a second outbreak could be. If lots of people have already had it, and indeed, as you say, if the antibodies are effective, then it could be less serious. But 6% is a pretty low figure. I've seen studies with with more than double that in the past. Uh, And then we've got this story from the Defence Committee in the House of Commons warning that the UK has got to stop China and Russia using the pandemic to their advantage. They say an ongoing review of foreign and security policy has to be prioritised, looking at the capability of what they call hostile states. And we heard from the chair of the committee, Tobias Elwood. We've seen that COVID-19 has exposed how risk-averse perhaps the West has become, siloed, more protectionist and so forth. There's a requirement for international leadership and a big question as to what Britain's role must play. And then, of course, what is our defence posture that must accompany that? That was Tobias Elwood there. And then the other issue that they raised were the fact that this is happening behind closed doors. Uh, Dominic Cummings, the top advisor of Downing Street, thought to be taking a leading role in them as well. Now, of course, yesterday there was that crash uh, on a train in Aberdeenshire. Three people were killed. An investigation has now begun into what caused it. The driver and the conductor died, along with a passenger, when the Aberdeen to Glasgow service derailed near Stonehaven. Trains thought to have hit a landslide after rain and thunderstorms caused widespread disruption. Six other people were also injured in that incident. Yeah, pretty serious, that one, isn't it? Um, Well, anyway, joining us now is Michelle Harrison, CEO of research firm Kantar Public. Um, We're going to get a little take into what people are saying, what people are thinking about the government's handling of the crisis. One particular area, Michelle, that's, that's interesting is jobs, because we're getting to the stage now where furlough is starting slowly to get uh, to get wound up and eventually it's going to disappear, as we know, by the end of October. What are people saying about how worried they are about their jobs? Yeah, good morning. 
Um, they're extremely worried. I mean, uh, since uh, last month's figures, we've actually started to see some changes now in in public sentiment. So, you know, we're very aware of the figures that are coming out about the state of the economy. People are really feeling that now at home. So, third of Britain saying that their income has been affected, uh, hit by COVID. But I think, you know, for us, the big headline this month is that one in four Britons are telling us they think they might lose their job this year. I mean, that's a, that's an enormous figure. It tells us something about the degree of insecurity that people are experiencing. So that kind of insecurity is obviously very important in terms of the way people look forward. What about people's feelings about the government doing these local lockdowns? I mean, as a way of defeating uh, the illness, because that seems to be very much the driving policy coming through from Downing Street at the moment. We've seen it in Preston. We've seen it, of course, in Leicester, famously, even in Aberdeen uh, more recently in Scotland. Um, do you think that this is uh, an, a, something that most people approve? What, what are you feeling? Uh, well, the, the figures actually are showing a really high degree of support for that. So, I mean, I think what we've got to remember, first of all, is that people do remain extremely scared of this illness. So, you know, three quarters of, of, of the people we've spoken to really fear a second wave because of the impact on uh, their own personal economy. Their sentiment is beginning to shift in terms of where they want government to put the emphasis, still a focus on health. But we're seeing this uplift in people who who want to see the government move faster on opening up the economy. And I think that's one of the reasons why there is so much support for the idea of, of local lockdown. I mean, we're talking, you know, more than 80% of people saying they fully support local lockdown. And that's because it presents to them the trade-off between, you know, protecting themselves from the illness and the fear of it, but also hoping that it doesn't have to do further damage to the whole economy. And so that's the economy. What about schools? Probably the biggest message from the government this week has been we want to get English school children back into the classroom in September. Are the people behind that sentiment? They are hugely behind it, actually. And, uh, you know, we, we just got the figures in the last 48 hours on this. Uh, Two thirds of people agree that opening schools in September should be an absolute priority for government even if that is at the expense of needing to, um, you know, temporarily close uh, non-essential shops or, or pubs or restaurants. So there is, there is an absolute wholehearted belief that getting British kids back to school um, is essential. And if we look at the people who are, who are even, you know, the most concerned about job loss and about economic insecurity, that group who sit between the age of 45 and 55, obviously getting the teenagers out of the house, getting the kids back to school important for them to be able to get back to work as well. Now, one of the things of all this depends on, of course, you know, our going forward altogether is going to be the vaccine. We have heard, of course, in the past week, the Russians saying, oh, yes, we've got a vaccine. We're actually now using it. And people saying, well, hang on, have you done all the right tests? But here in Britain, confidence in actually having a vaccination, if one exists, uh, there's been suggestions that perhaps people won't necessarily get it, which would defeat all the object, of course. What, what are you picking up on that? 
Yeah, uh, that's that's exactly what we're picking up. Only four in ten are saying they definitely have the vaccine. And, you know, when we when we look at everything around behaviour change and what has happened with this with this pandemic, we see these enormous shifts in some areas. You know, we see uh, only six percent of people now say they don't wear a mask. You know, and if you think three months ago, that was completely different. But if we if we look at this issue of vaccine. Over the last 20 years, because of all of the noise about about vaccine safety, that has really hit home. And we have less than half of, of Britain saying they'd definitely take the vaccine if it was available. So there's a lot of work to do there. But how does that sit with what you were saying earlier, that people are worried and they're supportive of local lockdowns so that they don't end up losing their jobs if a significant proportion of people then don't want a vaccine or aren't willing to wear a mask, then it doesn't quite tally in terms of what people are willing to do to protect their livelihoods. So people, we've got very high levels of support of wearing masks. So this this vaccine issue is, is, ah. is something specific. So we've only got 6% of people who are saying they wouldn't wear a mask, right? Uh, but we've got four, 4 in 10 people saying that they definitely have a vaccine. So we've now seen for a long time, haven't we, in Britain, concern about vaccine safety coming through. It's affected uh, child vaccination rates, etc. So that it's part of a of a different set of concerns. And I know it does seem, um, you know, to be very contradictory that we can be so fearful of an illness, uh, but also fearful of, of, of the role of vaccine in, in counteracting that. So, so there's an area of, of public health communications that are going to be very important to bringing people around to feeling more confident about that. Yeah, I guess people just fearful in all directions, perhaps. But, uh, Michelle, let me ask you about the economics, because people are frightened, obviously, there, too. Both, and I think this is really interesting, they're, they're frightened about the nation's economic well-being. Of course, we had that huge drop in GDP figure this week, uh, but also about their own personal finances. Just take us inside some of that. Yeah, so, I mean, we've got to remember that this is all unprecedented, and people still are at the very early days of adjusting to quite what's going on and how much they fully believe uh, that they're sort of in the midst of something that's permanent. So what we are seeing now, though, is a shift in that proportion of people who think their loss of income could be permanent or at least long term. So if we go back a few months, we had a very high degree of people who, despite having lost some income, thought that things could be back to normal within a few months. We're seeing less confidence about that. So, you know, growing numbers of people who think it's going to take longer than a few months, it might have to last into into next year. So still people just don't really have a clear view about what the future holds, but that level of concern about permanency is, is beginning to increase. And that is then shifting this public sentiment. So having all the way through had this focus on um, health before the economy and just last month people felt that the pace of of government opening things up was too fast that's shifting a growing number of people wanting to see government to go faster and that's that's one of the big changes in the last month and uh, you know a growing it's still a minority but a growing number of people wanting the government to focus again on the economy and speed up its reopening so I know we're a long way from an election, but is this having any sort of impact on the way people are thinking about voting? Yeah, so um, overall, um, we don't have high levels of support for the government's handling of the crisis. So around those very specific areas of policy we talked about you know, in terms of opening up schools, very high levels of support for that, very high levels of support for local lockdown. But overall, in terms of voting figures, 
Uh, Tories last month had, had stayed steady, but they've dropped three points uh, since July. Labour said that's 40. They've dropped to 42 from 45 last month in terms of uh, their voting intention. Labour stayed steady um, at 35. So Labour aren't gaining but the Tories uh, have started to decline. And one last point I'd make on voting intention for the first time in years this month, we've seen a shift towards a pro-EU sentiment. So we asked the same question month in, month out, about if there was an opportunity to uh, vote on a referendum, how would you vote? And for the first time in years, we saw a pro-EU sentiment increase by three points. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.